Okay, we're going to be hearing from God's Word. We're looking at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. This is a passage that was preached at Grace Church of Greenwich previously, and if you're here with us and you've heard it, it's good that you're here because you need to hear this passage again. It's one of those passages that um, we really need to remind us of the courage and strength that we have to be able to serve and speak about the Lord. So looking at Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign, this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and what your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Good morning. It's great to see so many familiar faces and new faces. And thank you so much for uh, your warm welcome, uh, not only to me, but to the whole Grace Church of Greenwich family. There was some sort of fire alarm problem. I don't know the details, but um, that's why there's so many of us here this morning. And uh, it's great to be together. So let's pray. Let's ask for God's help as we look at Acts Uh, chapter 4. Father, your your plans are different than ours, and uh, you have planned for us to be gathered together like this this morning. And we thank you for the word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who inspired it. May he speak to our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, apparently fear of public speaking is one of the most common fears. And those who experience this fear, which I think is all of us to some degree, I know I do, uh, perceive the audience as a threat, even if they look relatively friendly. I think most of you look fairly friendly this morning, uh, like you guys do. It is scary to speak to any crowd. And if it's scary to speak to a friendly crowd, how much more intimidating it is to speak to powerful people who express real hostility to you and your message. Well, welcome to Acts 4. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the book of Acts. In Acts 1 to 4, you know that the word of God, the word about Jesus, has spread like wildfire in Jerusalem. The church has grown dynamically. If you read Acts 1 to 4, as uh, Peter spoke the saving message of Jesus Christ. But in our text, uh, for the first time in Acts, the word is opposed by powerful Jewish authorities. And of course, their opposition to the word is taken out on people who speak the word. In this case, the apostles uh, Peter and John. Now, compared to what the apostles faced, uh, we here in the States have it relatively easy, actually, if you think about it. Uh, Legally, right now, we have uh, freedom to speak openly about Jesus, don't we? We're not persecuted by the state. I think that'd be a big overstatement to say that. But that said, we all uh, sense this kind of entrenched mindset of, you can call it tolerance, that is ironically so intolerant of people who speak the gospel. Uh, You see this maybe last week, uh, the quarterback for the Houston Texans, C.J. Stroud, uh, he gave glory to the Lord Jesus. He spoke about uh, Jesus after the big playoff win. And apparently, NBC, at least some clips, censored it took out the whole part about um, Jesus' name, which CJ was most excited about to speak. All that to say, the hostility that we uh, perceive, it is not imagined, it's real. Uh, There's a reason why we fear speaking openly to people, especially unbelievers, about Jesus. And I wonder how much fear there is in this room right now about this. Uh, Maybe we worry that the most powerful institutions seem increasingly hostile to the Christian gospel. And the question is, amidst real hostility, it is real, 
will the word continue to be spread? Another way to ask the question is, will the word continue to be spoken? Will we continue to speak the good news of Jesus in a hostile world? Well, here's the encouraging truth from Acts 4. It's the, really the one point I want us to see, is that those who speak the word will face hostility, expect it, but the word cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped. The word of Je about Jesus will spread. The gospel of Jesus Christ will continue to be spoken no matter what. It will happen. And I think that's the point. It's meant to encourage us. I think Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, called the book of Acts something like a tonic for the soul. It is. It's meant to be an encouragement to us uh, today, this morning. And I think the text gives us uh, at least two reasons we can all be confident that the word will continue to advance. It will be spoken, no matter how uh, intense the opposition. And the first reason of two, that the word will spread, is because there is undeniable evidence of Jesus' power. This is verses 5 to 22. There is undeniable evidence of Jesus' power. Now, to see this point, we have to back up and look at Acts 3 just for a moment. Uh, what happened is those in Jerusalem uh, witnessed clear evidence of Jesus's power. Uh, there was a man crippled from birth. You heard in the reading, he was over 40 years old. A man everyone knew. He would always be begging by the gate. And he was instantly here, healed through Jesus's uh, authority, by Jesus's authority, through the apostle Peter. And so Peter uh, uh, explains to the crowd what the sign means, and he says, you can see the uh, summary in, in 4 verse 2. Here's a summary of what Peter uh, preached. He proclaimed, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Now just notice what he does not say. He does not just say that Jesus himself rose from the dead, although that is true. They were proclaiming, in Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. So, so what were they saying? The, the message is this. Uh, the resurrection from the dead is, of course, shorthand for the day when God breaks into this fallen world again, this time to raise all who've ever lived, who've ever died, to face him as judge, along with all of us who might be alive on that day. Everyone will face him as judge on that day. And for God's people... It's the day of ultimate restoration and ultimate healing. When these weak bodies, which are prone to sin and death, are raised up to indestructible life and fully healed. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 21, uh, Peter calls it the restoration of all things. It's in Jesus. That's his message. That Jesus is the one who will return to fully heal his people, heal the planet, heal the whole created order. It's a great message. And notice, though, chapter 4, verse 5, as they are speaking, as they are teaching, the Jewish temple authorities and Sadducees rush upon the apostles, greatly annoyed, like hornets whose nest has been invaded. And you probably know something of the Sadducees from uh, Sunday school if you grew up in the church. They're Sadducee because they don't believe in a bodily resurrection. They didn't. They were kind of elitists. They were what we would call theological liberals. And they're so annoyed with who's teaching this commoner and what Peter's teaching that they arrest Peter and company. 
and they put him on trial the next day. And before we look at what he says, just try to put yourself for a moment in Peter's shoes. All the top dogs in Jerusalem, all of them, not just the Sadducees, they've all gathered to interrogate you, to question you. Now this group is the same group that crucified Jesus just a little while ago. Peter is semi, uh, a bit like this room actually, he's kind of semi-encircled by all these intimidating eyes and they ask him, verse seven, point blank, by what power or what name did you do this miraculous sign? What's he gonna say? Remember the last time Peter was on trial? If you know Luke's gospel, Luke 22, a servant girl questioned him. One set of intimidating, maybe not so intimidating eyes. And Peter crumbled, denied he even knew Jesus. What chance does he stand here? What hope does he have? These guys can arrest him and kill him. It's like a timid bunny rabbit surrounded by a pack of wolves. Except suddenly the bunny rabbit, the former bunny rabbit, is as bold as a lion. And he testifies about Jesus uh, fearlessly. He says, and we'll say what he says in a second, but before we do, let me just clarify one uh, misconception about boldness. Some people think boldness is the loud preacher who interrupts your quiet uh, train commute, uh, shouting about Jesus. That is not boldness. That's not the boldness we see here anyway. Notice what happens. They ask Peter a question. They're not, he's not forcing the gospel on somebody. He is given a clear opportunity to testify about Jesus. And I hope that's liberating for us this morning. Don't need to force it. The Lord does and will and may give us many opportunities to speak about Jesus. They'll be obvious sometimes. And Peter here has quite the opportunity. What's he going to say? How does he speak so freely? Well, for one, notice verse 8. He is, uh, it's not his own power. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, people have all sorts of ideas what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The key mark of it in Acts is bold, truthful speech about Jesus. That's the mark. The Spirit empowers him to bear witness to Jesus. And here's the thing. The testimony of what Jesus has done through Peter, the reason he can be so bold is because something undeniably good has taken place. I'm sure you appreciate the irony of verse 9. Peter says, you do realize the crime that we're being examined over is the crime of healing a crippled man. It's an act of compassion. And because it's undeniably good, Peter is uh, he's on the front foot, we might say. He's front-footed. Makes sense. Think about it. If you've done a good deed, you don't feel ashamed to testify about it. It's only when the accused has done evil that he hems and haws and evades uh, the question and gives all these kind of vague answers. Not Peter. He says very clearly, if you want to know by what power or name this crippled man has been healed, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's him, his power. And then notice, this is amazing, considering the, what's, uh, the context. This, uh, he's in a room full of uh, people who can kill him. Peter, the accused, goes on offense, and he lays charges against them. It's the Jesus that you, just a little while ago, crucified. 
and God overturned your verdict by raising him from the dead. It's through him that this man has been made well. It's quite bold. And it's again, it's bold because it's a good deed. That's why he can speak so openly. And doesn't this have something to say to us this morning as Christians? It's fashionable, of course, to criticize the church today. And some of the criticism is valid, and that's fair game. But it's quite naive to assume that all hostility toward the Christian church means we must be doing something wrong. Think about it. An undeniably good act was done through Peter, and he faced hostility for it. Think of Jesus himself. Acts 10 says he spends his whole life doing good to people. What does he get in return? The world crucified him. We will face hostility if we speak the good news of Jesus Christ. We will. And when we, when we face hostility, one of the things we must remember is that the Christian gospel is undeniably good. Why would we be cowed into silence as if it's a crime to offer the world victory over death in Jesus? Is that a crime, victory over death? To tell the world that in Jesus, you'll be fully healed one day, inside and outside? We're saying Jesus is the one who will return to heal the whole created order, heal the planet, something many people long for, good news, and he can give us a share in it if we trust him. It's undeniably good. And the gospel is a force for good even now. Just think about it. Many of the good things we value today, equality, justice, compassion, they flow from the Christian gospel. Who started the first hospitals in the Roman Empire? Christians. First orphanages? Christians. Before Christ, babies who were unwanted were just thrown away. Several years ago in the Times in London, there's an article published by an atheist named Matthew Paris. It's an atheist writing this. And the point of his article was that the Christian gospel that he doesn't believe in, and he says that, undeniably brings good to Africa. He says, you can't deny it. It's undeniably good. In his own words, he says, I cannot deny it, even though I don't believe. See, the gospel is undeniably good news. That's why it spreads. Good news travels. And if we're convinced it's good, which we ought to be from this passage, we'll be a little more ready to speak honestly and fearlessly about Jesus when given the opportunity. So I hope you hear that. That's the first kind of subpoint. It is undeniably good. That's why it spreads. And it also spreads because it is undeniably true. We're not speaking false information or myths. It's true. Remember, Peter is an eyewitness. He saw Jesus, who was crucified, died, buried. He saw him alive out of the tomb, risen from the dead. And again, from this passage, the evidence supporting his testimony is literally staring them in the face. The man who was crippled from birth is now healed, standing right in front of all of them. And they can't deny it. They even say, we can't deny it. And so Peter spells out what it means for them and for us. It means that God's plan of salvation centers in Jesus. Just let's reflect for a moment on that magnificent verse 12 
it's, it's well known. It is a good uh, refrigerator magnet verse. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's only through the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, that anyone can be saved and will be saved. And of course that offends our world. It's going to. But there is salvation in no one else, only Jesus, because that's the truth. There's no one like Jesus. Do you know of anyone else who healed a crippled man from birth? Do you know of anyone else who, after dying and being buried, emerged from the tomb bodily and walked again on earth? Do you? Please show us the evidence. We would all like to know if you have that evidence. See, there's no reason. I know we feel ashamed about verses like verse 12. We're tempted to. There's absolutely no reason to feel ashamed. We're not narrow-minded. That's the accusation. It doesn't stick. See, the, the, the narrow-minded person is the person who shuts his mind to the evidence. If you look at the evidence of Jesus' power, if you read any of the four Gospels, if you read Acts, it all leads to faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the only one who can save us and that he will and must save everyone and anyone who turns to him for forgiveness. And it's amazing. Think about uh, that includes the very people who crucified him. Maybe someone here this morning thinks, I've committed a, a sin that's, that's unforgivable. He, he's willing to forgive the very people who crucified him. You can be forgiven too. All of us can if we'll just turn to him. And the moment we call upon his name, he'll save us, he'll forgive us. Now in verses 13 to 14, just notice the authorities respond to his testimony. Notice verse 14, Peter's own opponents, they're silenced by the evidence. They have nothing to say. They have no argument to make. And so what did they do? This is very common when you're uh, on the wrong side of uh, the evidence. They meet as a little committee behind closed doors, and they're panicking. If you had a, a cell phone and you were texting about this to your friends, you would have the upside-down uh, uh, smiley faces and the little clown emojis because that's what it is. They're losing their grip on the people. You can almost smell their panic coming off the page. Look what they say in verse 16. This is funny. Everyone in Jerusalem knows this, this, about this sign. And we cannot deny it. So what do they do? Wrong side of it. To try to stop the spread, they resort to threats. It's quite common, right? Can't win the argument, so threats. Intimidate the apostles. Try to intimidate them into silence. And they just say, you cannot speak in his name. Now, of course, just think about this with me for a moment. Uh, suppressing the truth shutting down free speech, censorship, that sort of thing, everyone knows it's the mark of the loser. It's a sign of weakness. You can't engage in, in, in open uh, debate. You can't argue against the evidence of the gospel. So let's try to shut their mouths, muzzle them. But here's the great encouragement. It doesn't stop the spread of the gospel. And nor can it today. For almost 2,000 years, this has been going on. 
earthly authorities have tried to muzzle people from speaking the truth about Jesus, from proclaiming salvation in his name. What's happened over those years? Well, there's about, I don't know, two billion Christians. The gospel spread like wildfire, continues to spread. Why? Because it's true. I mean, you have to love verse 20. They're, they're threatened. You cannot speak in Jesus' name. And they say, sorry, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We saw it with our own eyes. We heard him with our own ears, so we will speak. We can't not but speak. That's all. We have to. His resurrection actually happened. It's undeniably true, so we're going to go on speaking. So I hope you're encouraged by that this morning. This gospel that we believe and proclaim, it is undeniably good, which will give us boldness to speak it, and it is undeniably true, which will, again, empowered by the Holy Spirit, give us boldness to speak it, continue speaking it. And that's the first point I want us to see. Uh, the second uh, major point, and we'll spend less time on this, the second reason that the word will continue to advance, continue to be spoken amidst hostility, and it's a great one, is that the opposition to the gospel only fulfills God's plans. This is verse 23 to 31. Opposition to the gospel, to those who speak it, it only fulfills God's plans. Now, that's an encouragement. For us at Grace Church of Greenwich, we might, I don't know, I, when I heard that this, uh, the service got disrupted, I was really, uh, not panicking, but I was really upset for a moment. I thought, oh man, what's gonna happen? It's part of God's plan. It is. And those who oppose uh, Jesus' spokespeople, they serve God's good purposes. We'll see this in a moment. In spite of the clear evidence of Jesus' authority, the authorities dig their heels in, they continue to threaten the apostles, and so what happens? The church has a prayer meeting. The apostles gather with the rest of the church to pray, and verse 24, there's really one word I want us to focus on, it's that word, sovereign Lord. That's how they address him, sovereign Lord. They remind the Lord, they remind one another of who's really in charge. How sovereign is the Lord? Does he rule over the authorities who oppose his people? Yes, of course. He rules over everything he's made. He really does, including these authorities threatening his people. And so the praying church appeals to Psalm 2, which is read. In Psalm 2, as you heard, as Danny mentioned, God laughs from heaven at these little earthly kings raging their fists against his Messiah, his king. He says it's in vain. It's a, uh, they plot in vain. It's not going to work. And we see this in history. Just look at verse 27. Uh, Psalm 2, at least part of it, was fulfilled when the earthly rulers, Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel, this big gathering, gathered as one against Jesus and crucified him. And it looked like they won. But their evil plot was in vain. Because if you have a Bible, look at verse 28. If you have a Bible open, I hope you do. Look at verse 28 and reflect on this question with me. What did their plot against Jesus accomplish? It only furthered God's plan of salvation. Jesus' death is, of course, the reason 
any of us can be forgiven of our sins. So they didn't stop God's plan. Their opposition only advanced it. That's the point. Do you see that? Their attempt to destroy God's servant Jesus resulted in his exaltation. God raised him from the dead, installed him as king of the universe, and so they can shake their little fists at him all they want. It's all in vain. And so what does that mean for them then and us today? Well, it means that the authorities who are threatening the apostles not to speak in Jesus' name, what are they doing? They're furthering God's plan. God is sovereign over them. It's part of his plan. Now, of course, God's sovereignty, rightly understood, leads not to passivity, but to spiritual activity. They do pray. Prayer is the expression of dependence on him. If we trust him that he's the ruler over everything, it will result in asking for his help. But notice verse 29, what they ask for. It's a bit surprising. Not remove the threats. Grant that your servants continue to speak with boldness. They do appeal to, uh, when they appeal to him, they say, look at the threats. See these threats. We know you care for us. We know you see what's going on. We know that you're the, the ruler. And so please intervene. And notice verse 31. You have to love this verse as well. The whole place was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and so they continued to speak the word with boldness. They got even more than they asked for. They asked for, uh, like the apostles, to have boldness. The whole church was filled with boldness. It's as if, verse 31, it's as if God is laughing from heaven at that moment as his, as, at his opponents, saying, you, you, think, you really think you can stop my word from spreading? They're going to keep, everyone keeps uh, speaking the gospel. See, here's the point we need to see from this section, is that God is in charge of whatever happens, even over those who want to shut us up. Their every attempt to oppose the gospel only advances it. That is our God. He really is sovereign, that sovereign, even today. I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's places like Iran, where there's intense persecution of Christians, those sorts of places, that's where the gospel is spreading like wildfire today. It can't be stopped. But of course, it's not just an encouragement for them uh, in Iran or wherever persecuted Christians, but it's an encouragement for us here this morning. And the encouragement is this. No matter how powerful, no matter how intimidating, opponents of the gospel may appear to us, the God of, the heaven, of heaven laughs. He laughs at their little attempts to stop his gospel from spreading. It's not going to happen. It will spread. Salvation in Jesus' name and his name alone, that message will continue to be spoken because God is in charge, not whoever else we think might be in charge. Doesn't this text give us unshakable confidence as we head into a new week, no matter what comes our way? Many Christians in the States, especially right now, have perceived that the Christian church has lost public influence. There's less influence than 40 years ago. Isn't it true that powerful institutions, powerful people are no longer friendly to Christianity? 
often oppose the gospel, at the very least promote ideas that are antithetical to the gospel. It's clear. And it's very easy, as Danny said earlier, to be consumed with anxiety and fear. What's going to happen? The early church was not. They were not overwhelmed with fear, even though they were so outnumbered, far more outnumbered than we are. They had zero political power, none, none, okay? No political power whatsoever for them. And yet they didn't live with worry and fear like some of us do. Why? Again, they remembered who's on the throne, who's in charge. See, who's running the show today? Who's governing the universe right now? The World Economic Forum? I mentioned them because they, there's a meeting this past week. Very powerful people. Some Christians, we might be afraid of that sort of group or whatever group it might be. I don't know. I'm not making any judgments on them. But if you think they're going to stop the God of the universe from advancing his plans, do we really think that? Not going to happen. Sovereign Lord, he's in charge. And so there's an encouragement for us to pray and ask for his help to keep speaking with boldness. As we draw to a close, you know, this new week, you may have moments, I hope you do, you should pray for them, when a clear opportunity to speak about Jesus falls into your lap. I'm not talking about forcing it, I'm talking about a layup where someone asks you, so what did you uh, learn about at a church on Sunday? And you know you have an opportunity to speak about Jesus. What do you do in that moment when you feel nervous and intimidated? Well, we ask the Lord to give us boldness to speak. We can't do it in ourselves. We don't have the, the power. Again, don't you love the realism of the Bible? It is scary to speak about Jesus in a hostile environment. But we're not left to ourselves. God will give us the boldness we need if we ask him for it. As we conclude, again, there will be hostility. But the message of salvation in Jesus' name will continue to be spoken. Because it is undeniably good. It is undeniably true. And those who oppose it are only carrying out God's sovereign plan to bring salvation by spreading his word about Jesus to the ends of the earth. And so be encouraged this week. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your forgiveness for often having a small view of you and way too big of a view of merely earthly authorities who we might be afraid of. And we ask that you please um, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us opportunities this week to speak openly to non-Christian friends about Jesus. And please give us the boldness to speak that we do not have in ourselves. And so please help us and please continue to grow your church. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <laughs>